to bridge Shani's lesson to tonight, I wanted to review her second point in summary, and I'm going to quote her, to just kind of bridge us from 1 John to 2 John. He wants us to believe the truth, obey his word, and walk in love. And as I kind of pondered on that, I couldn't help but think about the song, Trust and Obey. So you have a copy of that somewhere in your handouts. You've got about four handouts. So, hello, Asa. Um, We're going to sing the chorus. We're going to begin with the chorus, sing the first verse, and then end with the chorus. Let's go. One, two, three. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way while we do his good will. He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Really sing it out. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy, Jesus, but to trust and obey. You think we need to record that? Get a song label? It could happen. It could happen. All right, the handouts tonight, in addition to the lesson, I just gave you a general outline. Use it for your own private study. A copy of this song, use it for your quiet time. And then charts of the alphanumerical values, look it over because it really is interesting. Types of Bible translations, just to remind you, there are three types, word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrase. And then, of course, the discussion sheet. So, um... Let's bless our time together with prayer, guidance, and the infusion, we pray, of wisdom from God. Dearest Lord Jesus, we just thank you. I just am so thankful for your word. It is the beginning and the end. You are the beginning and the end. Father, I pray that your spirit would just anoint us with greater sight greater hearing, so that we can just consume, like a hungry child, the Word of God. Because the more we have of you inside us, the more we have to face the world. And we just ask your blessing on tonight. Bless each and every one of these women who are here. Bless all those that will come later. And we ask bless, special blessings on sisters who um, are in special need tonight. In the Lord's precious name, they all said, Amen. Amen. All right. So tonight we're doing, hello ladies, welcome. You just missed, we sang Trust and Obey. And I'm sure if you both would have been here, we would have definitely got a recording contract. So anyway... I want you to pretend tonight, okay? Most of my time I have spent in growing up 
in the theater business or my kids grew up watching me on TV doing commercials. So as I got to thinking about Second John, I thought, what if, what if we pretend that each one of you are the elect lady and someone comes knocking I tried to get someone to actually do this. A couple of people, and they've turned me down. So we're all going to pretend now. You all have to do it. Um, and someone knocks at the door with this with this manuscript. Uh-oh, we're going to hear a knock. Oh, my gosh. It's a messenger. It's a letter from John. This is to each and every one of you because we all are the elect lady. Let's read it together. The elder... It's right here, the first page. Got it? Let's go. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Because of the truth, let me hear you. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father, And from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. And as we received commandment from the Father, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. That as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourself that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things... I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. So imagine that you were the select lady and this message came to you. Wouldn't it be exciting? Chuck Missler says the message of John's second epistle to having a proper perspective of what he has said in his first epistle. Now, it's not, I am a big fan of Chuck Missler. I quote him a lot in this lesson, so I am, I'm sure he will take no offense at what I'm about to say. I believe this is true for all scripture, not just 1 John and 2 John, because biblical truth builds upon itself, doesn't it? I mean, what is Romans without Acts? What is the epistles of Peter, John, and Jude without Revelation? And what is Jesus in the New Testament without Jesus in the Old Testament? So let's begin our expository details. 
He starts off the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. So let's look at the word, the elder. We know that the New Testament uses this term bishop, elders, and presbyters. And we all are very familiar with that term, elder. That specific word appears many times in the New Testament from Matthew through John, then in Acts, 1 Timothy, Titus, and Hebrews. This terminology then and now represents leaders with great respect. And that's what we need to pray for regarding our country. This term has also carried an indication that this elder was over all the churches in a large area. So John is still working. He hasn't retired in the smallest sense. In fact, much to our chagrin, retirement is not, it's not in the Bible, ladies. It's just not. Possibly at the time of this writing, the oldest apostle living, no doubt. He is honorable, the leader of disciples. He is old in terms of holy service and experience. He's seen and tasted much of heaven. And I think he certainly believes he's a lot closer to that destination. I believe I am too. So there. The next part of this greeting is addressed to the elect lady and her children. Elect. The Greek word just means picked out, chosen by God. The Messiah is called elect, as appointed by God to step into the most exalted office conceivable, our Messiah. Something to note, this word is not used casually, so I don't think we should either. It's used by John with definite, definite intent. So, let me tell you. If you're not feeling special tonight or loved, let's just do a quick commercial for you. Don't you know that you, 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 and you, you're elect. We're all the elect. Lady, this specific Greek word is only used two times. And when I first discovered that, I looked and looked. But it's only used two times. And in this particular book, Second John, regarding word, for, word translations, and again, you can refer to the handout I gave you, it is used three times in the Old Testament. And then in this, the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used about seven times. Biblical scholars present four different approaches as to who this lady is. I'm going to mention them briefly. You pick whichever one you choose, but let me assure you, whichever one you choose, it is not a salvation issue, so don't worry. Number one, some scholars think it's a prominent unnamed Christian woman in the church to whom John is addressing. Number two, some believe this is referred to a specific woman or lady. The Greek equivalent of Kyria is Martha, which is the female equivalent form in Aramaic of as Lord or Master. So basically, one who is in charge by virtue of possession, one who is in a possession of authority. So it's probably 
her house because we know the churches were conducted in homes back then. And scholars note that she was obviously a woman of great influence for John in order for him to take the time to write and encourage her and her group of believers who had been specifically selected to lead the congregation. He calls her chosen leader. And then when you add and her children, most probably the letter is written on behalf of that particular house or church because the whole tone of the letter kind of seems to be a church instead of just a family. Number three, who ladies would be the most elect lady in the entire New Testament? Mary, mother of Joseph. And that's one of the options that scholars choose. An aside, Mary's sister was also at the cross when John was called to take Mary under his provision. I've got a reference for you there. There are a few biblical historians <laughs> that think that maybe at the time of John's um, writing, Mary might have already deceased. And I guess it's so. I tend to think of her so young when she had Jesus that I, I guess I just kind of, you know, she was still still out there. Some even claim it could, it could be Martha, a woman of great faith and insight. Bottom line is, get curious, ladies, and look up the references, and you decide what you think. And number four, it's an altogether different approach. It's been likened to a cryptic address as a veiled greeting. And according, accordingly, in the second epistle of John, verse 13, John uses the terminology, the children of your chosen sister send their greetings, denoting another congregation. So he may be writing to particular congregations where his jurisdiction was recognized, but in a non-identifying fashion to protect them. He didn't want to implicate anybody in words or in writing, because let's remember back then, persecution was pretty severe. So take just a little historical break and think back to the fact that none of the disciples lived that long. (laughs) People were literally dying for their belief in Jesus. That was then, and that is happening now in many parts of our country. And someday, according to Revelation, it will happen worldwide. So although the short phrase can be considered mysterious and whatever the four approaches you decide on, John's intent is still the same. I think he used this letter for two main frame purposes. Number one, to emphasize truth and love because he talks about it over and over. And number two, to warn against false teachers. Why is this important? John is making clear that this is our position. And I got to tell you, as I dug in, this became a real aha moment to me. It's not that I didn't know it, but it just pounded it deeper. Then and now, he's wanting, he was wanting them, and I think we are urged to do it now. We should be protecting our fellowship from false teachers. I mean, this class We need to be protecting one another. And I would like to take it just a little bit further. If we ever are in a situation where somebody's starting to say 
maybe unkind things about our brother or sisters, we need to nip it. We need to stop it right then and there. We need to protect them. And I would ask, are we doing that? You know, how faithful are we at doing that? The next section, whom I love in truth. Well, love, (laughs) we know it means beloved and to love dearly. We've read of the agape love all through the New Testament, and it was initially introduced by whom? Jesus in the New Testament as the ultimate form of love. Paul talks of its love in Romans, and then other authors do, and of course John uses it repeatedly. But who introduced it, ladies, in the beginning in the New Testament? Jesus, right? And then truth, aletheia, aletheia meaning fact, certainty, what is true in things pertaining to God and the duties of man, moral and religious truth, verity. And I love this because it is what is true in any manner under any circumstance. My takeaway is we have so much confidence as Christians that we know that this Bible is true. From Genesis to Revelation. I play a little truth and consequence game lately. Kind of, you know, how some people say, well, I don't believe in the Bible. You know, it's really kind of out of date and doesn't really mean this or that. And I go, oh, let's think about this. If you're right, then whatever the Bible says is not true. So there wouldn't be any eternal consequences if we don't believe in it, right? What if I'm right? Then, if the Bible is true, totally infallible, there will be eternal consequences for not believing its message. And then I just leave it there. Figure what I am more than anything in the world during this season of my life. I'm just a sower. I'm a sow, 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 sow. (laughs) And let's see how God reaps it. The word truth is used a lot. The New Testament authors use it over 110 times, beginning with Jesus' references in the gospel. Acts picks it up, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians. Agapio is found 198 times in the Septuagint. So let me remind you, this is the Greek version of the Hebrew manuscripts. So is this a new concept? No. It's not. Not new at all. John used it 37 times, just depending on what translation you read. But who introduced it? Be it the Old Testament or the New Testaments? Let me hear you say it big. Jesus. John is definitely focused on truth. And this was another aha moment to me that really went deep. We don't realize how much truth, and especially God's truth, has this beneficial binding that it provides to the Christian community. Think about that. It doesn't care what your social position is. It doesn't care what your political position is. It doesn't even care what your class compatibility is. Does it mean that we're not aware of things going on around us. It just means that we're primarily focused on the truth of God, on the truth of Jesus, and on the truth of the Bible. If anything, that biblical truth 
binds us and turns us into this confident and worthy warrior that we are united under one mission and one mission only to love our God and to love others. It's just that simple, really, isn't it? When you, when it all is boiled down one phrase from the truth project that I just can't get out of my mind, ladies. And if you are around me very much, you've heard me say this resistance requires awareness. We must be aware of God's truth, God's principles, and aware of what's happening around us. Why? So that we can resist it. Because the deceit of sin runs, runs pretty deep right now, and we have got to be aware. So we're still in verse 1, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. <clears throat> this is a powerful, powerful phrase. I only hope I can do it justice by just looking at some of the key words. And not only I, we heard Shaney talk about only, the word monos, meaning soul or single. John has a single purpose in mind, but also all those who have known the truth. Now, this was kind of an aha moment for me, too. I got excited. Also... Also is a cumulative force. It's used over 9,200 times in the Bible. Let that sink in because when a word is used that much, we need to pay attention. This word is very, very specific because it's a word with such longevity that it reaches back into the past while it's reaching into the future. It calls us to remember other times in scripture that we have read about whatever topic it is that is going to be introduced. From the mention of Abraham and Matthew, throughout the genealogical recounting and throughout the gospels and through Paul's letters into the general letters all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, when you see the word also pay attention because it's asking you to remember about the cumulative force from the past that stretches into the future. You could basically say from eternity past to eternity future. Um, the word all, we've seen this word explained in so many studies, and it, it's just forms of declension or variations of a noun, pronoun, or adjective that have known the truth. Let's look at two words, known and truth. Known is Greek, which in Greek, again, is a prolonged form of a primary verb, meaning anyone who knows, understands, perceives the truth, aletheia. Same meaning as earlier, and it bears repeating what is true in things pertaining to God and within the duties of man, moral, and religious truth. This is something I don't think we really maybe grasp, or maybe I didn't, um, as much as I should have. Truth regarding God's truth has boundaries. God's boundaries that he has provided for us within the realm of truth and because truth has boundaries, guess what? It has meaning. That's why now 
we don't know what to believe because the truth has no boundaries. God's truth, it has boundaries. Praise God. For all of those who did attend the Truth Project, you heard the word verity used a lot. And the reason I'm bringing that up, I remember the one comment we heard a lot, and Shani can bear me out in this. People kept saying, I can't believe how relevant it is (laughs) to today because it was made in 2006. That's because, and I didn't realize it until I was saying this, what we saw in action in that video was the prolonged form of truth. You see it? Truth doesn't change from age to age, does it? Or from fad to fad. It is truth that will be with us for space, 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 ever. That is why the Word of God is relevant today. God's truth doesn't have an expiration date on it. If the truth was relevant in Genesis, it's going to be relevant in Revelation. So why does John use this word truth so much? The answer is in the next part of the verse. It's in verse 2. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, he expounds that religion should still dwell within us, in our minds, in our hearts, in our faith and love. It is to be hoped that where religion once truly dwells, it will abide forever. Ever, Therefore, the spirit of Christianity will not be totally extinguished. It cannot. It, 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 it is the opposite of that. It has consistency that lasts forever, which will be with us. Hi, ladies. Come on in. It's not a mistake that I keep referring to the word forever as two separate words. I'll tell you why. John presents it that way, and Matthew Henry in his commentaries and other commentaries that I've looked at also presents it that way. I never knew that until I dug into it. So let's look at both words, for and ever. For means into, unto, or toward. This is the part I really love. It indicates the point reached. So there's a point that you reach or entered for a purpose and a result. It is throughout. It is far more exceeding. See that extension and the longevity of the word? It it reaches back. It reaches forward. Let me ask you, when does your, your or my eternity begin? Does it begin the day you were born? That's what we tend to think, isn't it? That's our dimension, our reality. And you know why? Because it's difficult for us to look behind us from the moment that we entered this world. But you know what? It, it is not only behind us. It is with us now, and it will be with us in the future. So let's look at the word ever. It means evermore, eternal, and I love this part, unbroken age perpetuity of time, the world's universe by extension, by implication. The Bible represents this word (laughs) forever and many other words 
as words that span from eternity past to eternity future. And I just look at it as it's his way of showing us the absolute vastness of his world, his lack of time in his world. He doesn't have time. I think Tim mentioned that this Sunday and space and scope. So can you see if we just looked on a straight line, the value of four ever just, I mean, it just keeps coming. It keeps coming. It's coming from behind. It's going into the future. I looked at literally all the translations listed with Bible Gateway and was a little bit surprised at how many translations show the word forever in two parts. I've listed them for you. I'm not going to go over it because I really want to be through by about 730-ish so we can have lots of discussion time. But if you have any questions about them, I'll be glad to talk to you after class. Weeks ago, when I was doing grandma duty, I was in the car listening to, you know, my Christian radio, and I happened to hear just a little bit does God ever do that to you? He just uses a little bit of something and he just drills it down, drills it down, drills it down. I was listening to a little bit of an interview between Eric McTactus, anybody know who he is? And Rabbi Sobel, you know who he is? Well, God has been using that little bit that I heard to just work deeper and deeper in s- regarding the longevity and the significance of his languages because the more I've drilled down into Second John, he's shown me how many prolonged meanings all these words have. He chose to script, inspire the Holy Bible in Hebrew, in Greek, and Aramaic. Guess what? All three of those languages, and you have a handout tonight. We're not going to get into it, but I thought it might be interesting for you. All three of those have alpha and numerical values. You you have to ask yourself, so why is that significant, Lord? The combination, now think about this, wrap your head about it. The combination of alpha and numerical words Whether we want it or not, they organically create prolonged values and meanings. They have to, because God has married both parts of the universe together. Now, I'm going to illustrate it by saying something kind of silly, but in our language, in English, if I say go, it doesn't have any numerical value undergirding it. (laughs) The only thing that I could do to prolong that word is if I went go. But it still doesn't work. (laughs) It only means so much. Adversely, as God directs and inspires the ancient writer, think about it. People he loved, he asked them to use and, and inspired them to use words with prolonged meaning. And he did it for a lot of reasons. He did it. To show how deep and wide his words, for one of the reasons, go to reveal his plan and his purpose. So I ask you, what is his plan? What is his holy plan from Genesis to Revelation? It is so simple. He's wanting each one of us to just, he wants to reveal himself to us individually, personally. So what is his holy purpose for us from Genesis to Revelation? Now watch what happens. 
He wants us to take that individual and personal revelation of him, let it flow through us, and share it with others. What is that? It's a cross, isn't it? I mean, it's just amazing how he takes a vertical line and crosses it with a horizontal line. The Bible is, this is, I think, insightful when you really think about it. What is the Bible comprised of? Personal revelations of this triune God written down so others would know about the love and truth of God's plan and purpose for redemption through Jesus Christ. So, follow me here. God instructed his ancient writers to use his language to define beyond argument his sovereignty. It's there. We can't take it away no matter what we try to do. His vastness from eternity to eternity into this far more proceeding space of time we can only imagine. And from time to time, we see little confirming quirks of that. So I'm going to get back to my grandmawing and tell you what I heard that just made me pay attention. And some of us who went through the Psalms class and learned about the value of Hebrew and the numerical as well as the word. What day did God, Jesus, create Adam or man? According to the Jewish calendar, it was the sixth day. Fast forward. What day, according to Jewish calendar, did the new Adam, Jesus, die to his humanity? It's the sixth day. Is that amazing? That is no coincidence. That is divine orchestration. Wow. I get gobsmacked. You'll have to excuse me, but I just really get gobsmacked when I, when I find such deepness as that. God is telling us that we are so loved by this truthful and huge, gigantic, far more exceeding God than we can even imagine. And if you have ever thought, because of something you've done, that you're unlovable or undeserving of this huge love... We're going to look at just one perfect illustration of divine orchestration of Paul to Saul. Here's a man, Saul, who hunted, who persecuted, who called me on the phone just now, (laughs) and who either directly or indirectly caused the death of some Christians in the new church. People feared him. (laughs) The new Christians, the new church, were scared to death of him. And then, boom, God comes, manifested as Christ in all his human, in all of his humanity. And this hunter becomes Paul, who is so inspired by God that he writes most of the New Testament. God's next prolific writer is who? John. Sometimes I really think that the only reason John lived for so long was God knew he was going to have him pin (laughs) the revelation of Christ. But enough being gobsmacked. Let's continue in 2 John. This prolific man of God, John writes, grace, mercy, and peace. Oh, I love this part. We'll be with you 
from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So let's break those three attributes down, grace, mercy, and love. First of all, they're an apostolic greeting that compares to the salutations of Peter and Paul, who write about grace and peace quite a bit. Paul, towards the uh, end, expands his greetings to all three in First and Second Timothy. So does John. But look at these words individually. Now, hang on to yourself, because when I start defining grace, you're going to go, what? Grace, the Greek meaning favor, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, benefit, goodwill, kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ and then keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian faith, in knowledge and affection, and kindles them to exercise the Christian virtues. So one could say that grace is the ability to turn to Christ by God's holy influence. Let's look at mercy, meaning uncertain affinity of God towards mankind, the mercy and the clemency of God in providing the offering to humankind, salvation by Christ. Again, a timeless meaning. So one could say that mercy is the gift of salvation from Christ. And then peace, root meaning to join. Now pay attention to this. Not only does it mean to join, but it means peace among individuals and specifically to the Christian community. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God when we truly belong to him and being content with our earthly lot, no matter what that is. How many times in the New Testament scriptures especially do we see this deep, pure contentment from the New Testament writers a little bit different from some of the Old Testament writers. Here's a couple of quotes that you might, might enjoy. This is cute. Grace removes guilt. Mercy removes misery. Peace expresses a continuance in grace and mercy. Westcott says, grace points, I've got to read it verbatim so I don't mess it up. Grace points to the absolute freedom of God's love in relation to man's helplessness to win it and mercy to his tenderness towards man's misery. Peace stands for harmony, trust, rest, safety, and freedom. It is God's gift to man. But I love the way Chuck Missler says it. How many of you guys remember Chuck Missler? He says, grace is getting what we don't deserve Mercy is not getting what we do. (laughs) God extends all three of these virtues to us as a gift. We We can't manufacture grace, mercy, and peace. It has to be given to us. 2 John 3a says, We'll be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Notice how John is purely definite about who is going to be with you. He does not express a wish. He declares that grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. And because of that, 
I'm going to try not to tear up. Our relationship with the triune creates this craving for blessings from this indescribable force of God. Do we not? And the deeper our relationship grows, we lean more into those blessings. And we even learn to lean into test, which become what? Personal testimonies. Another way to share the purpose of God. We, all of us in here, become this tapestry of love for God because of his love. Therefore, the triune is a fountain of blessedness that we all, that we as receivers, now don't laugh at me, can cuddle. I know that's a childish term, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it encompasses the kind of contentment that we have that God just offers to us for the taking. It is these blessings when we ponder on faith that preserve true faith and love in Christ when things get tough. And I can look around this room and I know some of your stories. And it's not been easy, but you've persevered because of your faith and your love. John can hardly write a verse without tapping into the truth and love and then he wants to weave it all back to you. John's reminder regarding the origin of Jesus, the divine logos, the word that was with God and that was God. This logos became flesh and dwelt among men. He is the groundwork for our salvation. He is the miraculous conception from God to us. He is God. A fact that the Gnostics absolutely denied back then, and they do now, and although they may call themselves by different names, please do not be deceived. It's a denial of Christ's deity, period, end of story. Please be aware of that. Please know that pluralism, that is sometimes called pluralism, and that the pluralism project is in full force. Pluralism just means believing your truth and my truth has equity. We do not need Christ to have communion with God, it says. If you want to know more about the pluralism project, um, be glad to talk to you later. And I just am reminded of that quote again. Resistance requires awareness. Be aware whenever you're talking about Christ that you include all of his humanity and include all of his deity, his divinity. I mean, John, he he writes an entire gospel based on that, doesn't he? He pounds it over and over and then he revisits it in this particular 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But with God, every once in a while we can touch this thing that seems outside of our grasp, but we have to be aware of this truth if we're going to resist. So grace, mercy, and peace, the three virtues that flourish within an environment where truth and love exist, truth and love are the undergirding. But if we don't stand firm, grace, mercy, and peace, it'll go right out that window. It'll have no standing. 
I'm going to kind of wrap this up with a, a couple more quotes. One is from a commentator. Truth unites the Christian community when it faces the common foe of falsehood. And I think we'll, we can remember the last two or three years, and it's really done that in so many respects. And then good old Chuck Missler, if you take love away from truth, you don't have Christian love. Real love always operates within the sphere of truth. So truth and love, we've already covered, Shaney's covered them, and I can guarantee you, ladies, as long as we're studying God's word, we're going to cover them again, and we're going to keep covering them. Let's go on to verses 4 and 6. It's talking about walking in Christ's commandments and truth and how to live it. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received commandment from the Lord. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. Does that kind of sound familiar, Shaney? (laughs) But that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, this is love, that we should walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So let's take verse four and look mostly at two phrases. I rejoice greatly. John was joyfully addressing and confirming that they were successful in their walk with God. John reminds me of what we call um, in our family a sandwich. You start off with exhortation, then in the middle he puts the warning, and then at the end he put he gives a promise. And we try to do that with our grandchildren. We start off with, oh, but yet. <laughs> so he was so filled with joy at their steadfastness because they were truly walking in, in truth. He was commending them with uncertain affinity, thus the word greatly. And this, again, is not an overused word. It's only used about 14 times in the New Testament. And the next time we hear about it is going to be in 3 John when Mickey goes over that. Then the next phrase, that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Let's look at some of the key words, found, means to come upon, to meet with, defined literally or figuratively, defined by inquiry, thought, examination, scrutiny, observation, defined by practice and experience. And you know what, ladies? That's what you're doing tonight. We're all here, aren't we? Practicing our godly experience. That's what we, why we go to church is to practice it corporately together. That's why we go to life groups is to build upon it. So here, once again, we find a word with a lot of longevity. Children, same meaning as earlier, probably denoting youthful members of a church which are under the care of a very mature Christian. And I want to just pounce on this a little bit because the needs of our youth to fortify against irreligious infection. I found that phraseology lately and I just love it. Irreligious infection is great. But when we watch them, overcome trials and have a successful process, it does produce joy in us, doesn't it? I mean, anytime we see people overcoming and walking in the light, I mean, I look at some of you and I 
I can't help but smiling because I know that you're working so hard through God to do the right thing, to walk in the light. Walking, peripatia, to me that kind of has a automatopoeia to it. It actually just means to be occupied. Phil's sermon, remember that when he preached on occupy? And we were all like, <laughs> what does that mean? And then Luke tells us to occupy, to make one's way or progress. I looked it up in Hebrew too, because I wanted to just see. I wonder how it differs in Hebrew. It means to live, to regulate one's life. It is God's plan and purpose for us to walk with him, just like Adam and Eve walked before the fall. And again, I like the pitter-patter of that Greek word. Truth, persisting course, reminds you of many scripture verses I'm sure we've all read many, many times. Same meaning as before, but there was one more definition that I found in one of the commentaries. Let me just summarize. Truth, the true notions of God, which are open to human reason. And yet we hold true to the course it leads us into without rebellion. Why? Because his truth not only has boundaries, think about this. It's got supernatural intervention. Wow. Opposing. Remember who John is writing to. They were opposing the superstition and the paganism of the Gentiles and all these Jewish rules and regulations that they had just expounded upon. And they had the the current corruption um, against rise um, uh, and precepts of false teachers, even among themselves. Because if we think about, remember when we studied Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is saying, watch out. There are false teachers out there. Jude says, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, they've not only come, but they're inside our church now. So John is is adamantly warning that they want to come into the church. And now the same truth that we have has that same supernatural intervention against the rising embrace of the new age, against the lean into socialism, against groupthink, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, a then and now comparison to the current climate. When you're reading and studying scripture, if you just do some historical digging, you have no doubt of what their current climate was, do you? I mean, we know what it was when Abraham was dealing with all of his people. We know what it was when Moses was. All the way through Revelation, we know what the current climate is. So remember, resistance requires awareness. John 4a, as we received commandment from the Father, I just want to look at two words. Oh my gosh, running out of time. Received, we have another form of a prolonged primary verb which is only used as an alternate in certain tenses. And I think that's something to take note of. So it's very, very specific. What does it mean? It means to take, to claim, to seize, to apprehend. In other words, to receive what has been given by God through Christ. You could even say it the way Luke does, occupy. This word has a finality to it. This was another little aha as I dug. It not only sticks 
in us, but it sticks with us as we proclaim the mystery of the gospel forever. Do you see, ladies, just make eye contact contact with me a little bit. Do you see the magnitude of all these prolonged words that John is using and incorporating into this chapter and how they all thread together? The word of God is deep and it's wide and it covers far more than what we'll ever, ever need. Our soul stretches towards him because we want to discover it more and more. We want to figure out how to submit wholly to him and get this abundance of protection and providence that he so faithfully provides. He has given us beyond our measure. We will never, ever, ever run out of the ability to receive. We just need to keep that open reservoir coming in. A commandment. It just means a prescribed rule in accordance to the command the commandments in the Mosaic law or Jewish tradition. And I think something we kind of forget from time to time, John is talking about the commandments, the ones that Jesus, I mean, that God in his own hand wrote, writing wrote on the stones. I mean, that's pretty, pretty significant. And then Jesus, when he shows up, what does he do? He takes those commandments and he carries it forth with plan, with purpose. Unfortunately, the Jewish leaders, they were so off track because of all their amendments to God's law. They kind of got all tied up in this legal legalistic knot. And we might want to discuss tonight, how do we resemble that? We can get so caught up in the law and forget the reason for the law is to show us that we need the lamb. Father, oh, I think we're going to end right on time. I'm so excited. You have no idea how much we time these things <laughs> to make sure that we come out okay. And I want you to have lots and lots of time to discuss things tonight. Father, John, I can tell you, is using Father to mean God. It's used a lot and it has a lot of different meanings, but he is actually referring to God the Father, the Father of all mankind, the one who infused his own spirit into others, all rational and intelligent beings, whether they're angels or mankind, because God is our creator, he's our preserver, he's our guardian, he's our protector, he is the Father of Jesus Christ, and of each and every one who embraces Jesus as our Savior. We are ending here for this week, and again, I want you to just know, And uh, in addition to the lesson, you've got a general outline for Second John. I hope you use it in the next week on your own study. Sing, trust, and obey in your quiet time. Um, Think a little bit about how all those three languages have such deep, deep meaning and values. It wasn't an accident. And then you also should have the discussion sheet for tonight's um, questions. The questions that I've got written down, we want to sit in our small group to discuss them. And remember how Shani defined that. No more than four. 
And I pray that your discussion tonight is so worthwhile. We're going to come back together probably the last five, eight minutes of the night and share as a group what you've discussed in your small groups. So let me pray us out so that we can stop whenever we need to or whenever you need to go. Oh, God, thank you. I get so excited when (laughs) we study your word. It is just so full of wonder and mystery. And I just praise your holy name that you want us to just dive into it. You want us to just meditate on it so that you can reveal personal and individual wonders to us that we can therefore take and tell others about. You are so great. You are so kind. We praise your holy name. We thank you for your forethought. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that nothing ever, ever, ever surprises you. We thank you for John, the apostle. We thank you for all the ancient writers, Old Testament and New, who you inspired to write down their personal testimonies so that we might learn from them. Oh, how we love you, God. How we adore you, Jesus Christ. And it's in your wonderful and holy name that we all say with a robust amen.